Hey, good morning. How are y'all today? I think you can do a little better than that. Hey, I like that. I like that. How are y'all doing today? Good. Good morning. Well, cool. Hey, my name is Kevin. As, uh, as Matt said, I'm one of the pastors here at Southcrest. And uh, I get to talk to y'all today, so it's a big honor, and I'm excited about it. And uh, hopefully God has something good to say that he can say through me. That would be uh, really special for me. Um, I want to just thank Elizabeth. Elizabeth is back there, but I want to thank her for keeping track of me because uh, I'm difficult for the tech people to keep up with. And I want to say a big thanks to all the tech people. I don't know if y'all know this, but the tech people are descended from an ancient tribe. You find them in the Old Testament. They're known as the Techites. And so, uh, no, you're not going to find them. That's a really bad youth pastor joke, but you're not going to find the Techites in the Old Testament. Um, but they are important. They are great to have around. So um, I appreciate them. And uh, Arthur isn't here right now. I believe he's in LaGrange, but uh, Arthur's here in spirit because I'm now using his mic pack. Um, I used a different one. So at least I'm using his mic pack. Uh, but we've been going through the book of Matthew and specifically the Beatitudes together. And uh, Arthur's been in, spending some time there. And so I have the opportunity to talk to y'all uh, about Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 primarily. So uh, if you have your Bible or your Bible on your phone or um, you want to watch on the screen, that'd be completely fine. Uh, if you're on the internet or, or wherever you are, um, we're going to have the verses on the screen. So uh, you are good to go on that. But we're really going to focus on this verse this morning and really kind of break it down a little bit. And there's some other verses we're going to talk about, but this is huge. You know, the Beatitudes are a really important sermon where Jesus is really sharing his heart for people and his heart for what he wants for them to have in their life and for their future. So uh, a really big deal. And so let's just read it together. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, who's ever been hungry before? Anybody ever been hungry before? Yeah, who woke up hungry this morning? That's a lot better than going to bed hungry, am I right? I hate that. I ate snack last night, and it's usually bad things, just so I won't go to bed hungry. Y'all probably done that. You've probably been thirsty before, too. This morning, um, let's see, who got the Snickers this morning? Where's the Snickers recipient? How was it? Are they good? Yeah, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. But, you know, let's, let's be honest. Sometimes you wake up and Sunday morning, if you've got kids especially, but Sunday morning it's, it's a little hard because you've got to take a shower probably or at least comb your hair and you should wear deodorant and, um, and clean socks and stuff. And sometimes you just run out of time for breakfast. Uh, and so you get a little hangry. Y'all been hangry before? Who's been hangry? Y'all want to know something about Arthur? He gets hangry sometimes. Yeah, he does. And it's cool. I can say that because he's not here, but he knows that about himself. And so he tries to, to plan around it. Um, but it's just, it's just kind of cool um, to be able to help a few people with hanger. And uh, let's find some pe- other people. Let's see. Did anyone get up early enough to have pancakes this morning? Someone in the first service had pancakes. Anybody have pancakes? Okay, so this is a, oh, we have one. So yeah, um, that's a good job, early bird. Real, oh, what? Well, let's see. But see, you're planning it even further ahead. It's like the people that make the overnight oatmeal. Y'all do that? Does anybody do the overnight oatmeal? Man, that requires so much planning. I'm lucky that I just make sure the night before that I have something I can wear the next day that's not like actually out of the dirty clothes hamper. That's a bad, bad thing when you have to put on dirty clothes. But today they're all clean, okay? I'm clean, everything head to toe, completely clean. Took a shower and everything. But the the hunger we're talking about today, uh, it's not the Snickers kind of hunger. Snickers are not going to fix it. It's not a hangry kind of hunger. The kind of hunger we're talking about cannot even be satiated by, I don't know if y'all know this, but there is a one pound Snickers bar. And I don't have one because it's really only available at the holidays. 
and uh, and I had some people helping me look for it, um, and Hannah even even worked on that. But you apparently can only really get it around the holidays, and if you were to get it now, it's probably from last year. And I didn't think any of y'all wanted a six-month-old one-pound Snickers bar. Um, so even the one-pound Snickers bar, if I could give that to you this morning, which, which I would if I could, um, but it's not going to take care of this hunger. This hunger that we're talking about is something in your soul. It's a soul hunger. The kind of thirst we're talking about this morning is not the kind of thirst that you have when, you know, you're doing a workout and you forget your water bottle. That's not what we're talking about. It's not even the kind where you eat a whole bunch of fries, okay, that are super salty, which a lot of us like. Who likes salty fries? Yeah, that you get hungry, right? You get thirsty after you eat those fries. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a foundational soul hunger and soul thirst. And so we're talking about really one verse in depth today. And so I'm going to go ahead and preface this by saying I'm no Greek scholar. But with all the amazing resources that they have on the Internet, you can actually look at the English version of the Bible right next to the Greek version and kind of get some interesting insights. And if you don't know anything about Greek, Greek is awesome. I took it in seminary just enough to know that I don't know anything about Greek. Um, but Greek may have four or five different words for something that we only have one word for in English. And so, you know, it's, it's very deep and very nuanced language, but I'm just going to share a little bit with y'all today and hopefully it'll help you grab a little more. And I'm going to really just brutally massacre all these words. And as long as you're okay with that, just nod your head if you're okay with that. And knowing that, Hey, we do it all the time. If we go outside of our own language and even for the most part, we brutally massacre English, right? If we were to go to, to, to England, they would suggest that we have done that. Um, but pay nao, it's the word to hunger or to be hungry. But again, as we're saying, this is, we're talking about a soul hunger. So it's a little deeper than that. More like I am needy. Look at this. I crave ardently. Y'all ever crave ardently for something? The closest I've come on food is probably my wife's lasagna. It's really good. Sometimes I crave it ardently, but it's still not a soul hunger. Seeking with eager desire. This is about as much as we can, we can detail. It's, there's a hole in your soul. There's a problem and you crave something to fill it. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. And the word for thirsty is very similar. It's uh, dipsao. It means to thirst. But it's talking about thirsting for as in I painfully need. I desire earnestly. I read a story uh, not too long ago about some World War II bomber pilots and they were doing a bombing run. It must have been like Italy or something. And they got confused at night. And they ended up over North Africa. And they knew there was an American base or a British base that they could land at. But they were completely lost. And uh, it didn't work out well for them. They crash landed into the desert. And nobody really knew where they were. And, you know, after a long time, they said, well, they're just missing. And so years later, maybe it was National Geographic. They went back looking for this plane because they figured, hey, a really old plane in the desert. You know, it should be intact and maybe we'll find out what happened to these guys. Well, along the way, they found, you know, the plane and they found some of the, the guys, you know, they're, they're basically their, their little suits and everything were pretty much all that was left that they could use to identify them. Um, but they also found a journal and they found that these guys made it a really, really long way from the plane. Miles and miles and miles. And some of them went several weeks before they succumbed to a lack of water. And, you know, you can go a pretty long while without food. Um, and you can go a little while without water, but these guys died of thirst. They didn't make it. And not even that is the kind of thirst that we're talking about because that is a physical thirst. That is a physical need. We're talking about a deep spiritual need. And so Jesus knows that the people he is talking to in that time had dealt with hunger. They dealt with thirst. 2,000 years ago, if you were thirsty, you didn't walk up to the fridge and, and stick your cup. Y'all have one of those where you can just stick your cup in there and water comes out? 
I mean, literally, I mean, can you imagine if someone from Jesus' time was hanging out at your house and y'all were just chilling and, and then you're like, you want some water? And they're like, that'd be great. And they're thinking, do you have like the stomach of an animal or something full of water? And you're like, hey, just like this. They would be shocked because they didn't have access to, to food and water like we do now. They, they had times of hunger. And so Jesus knew he was speaking to folks that sort of understood where he was coming from. And he's trying to get at the, at the bottom of this, this hunger and thirst thing. So we're going to ask some tough questions today, but I think it's going to help us to, to end up in a place of peace and fulfillment. So I've got three questions for you and they're going to do the magic and put them up. See, did you see that? I went like that and it happened. So what do you hunger and thirst for? Y'all ever thought about that? And I don't mean like, do you like lasagna or do you like Snickers bars? What do you really hunger and thirst for? You know, that gets to what motivates you in life. What's your motivator? What drives you? What gets your what gets you rolling in the morning? What gets you out of bed to go to work for like, is it like a hundred years that we have to work? I think before you retire, something like that feels like sometimes. Where does your motivation come from? Some good questions, right? Something to ask yourself. These questions aren't always easy, but we can learn a little bit. Anybody here a psych major? You're probably psychoanalyzing me right now. I understand. My wife is a psych person. Anybody here uh, have a PhD in psychology? Anybody? Or uh, an advanced degree, a graduate degree? If so, you can come to my house and just kind of watch and give me feedback, you know, as you like. And, and uh, you can psychoanalyze me. And I guess you have to send me the bill. But psych- psychologists over the years have come up with this thing called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Y'all ever heard of that? It's been out for a while. And um, I have a cool little mountain because who doesn't want an image of a mountain, right? And y'all can see that. This is a little mountain climber guy. Notice he's wearing a helmet. He's being safe. But this is Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And this was like a psychologist like... A couple generations ago, he, um, he came up with these ideas. He really feels like this is what drives people. And you start off with physiological. The things Jesus is talking about, like being hungry and thirsty, that's physiological needs. People need to eat. They need to sleep. Safety. Who doesn't want to be safe, right? People want to be safe. And then you kind of move up the mountain, love and belonging, esteem, and then at the top, self-actualization. The self-actualization really gets to the core of who you are. So Jesus here is using words that live in the physiological, like being hungry and being thirsty. But really, he's talking about why you are who you are. Why are you here? What's your job? What's going to fulfill you? Why did God make you? Why do you wake up every morning? These are the kind of questions that Jesus wants to help us answer. Because he made us. We know how to tell when we're hungry, right? You get a little rumbling in your tumbling. Yeah. When you're thirsty, your mouth is dry. These things happen, right? I'm thirsty right now. Right? We know what to do. Thirsty water. And it'll come again later, right? We know how that works. But we want to get to a little more depth. And so I'm going to ask y'all to do something with me. Y'all trust me? Who trusts me? Y'all trust me? A little bit? At least trust me enough to listen to me? Okay, we have safety team in place, so I'm not going to do something super weird to y'all. All right? So I have six questions, and I just want you to close your eyes. All right? You don't have to go anywhere or do anything or poke your finger uh, in your neighbor's ear or any weird stuff. When we do youth ministry things, we do youth ministry things and they're weird. We're not doing any weirdness today. All right, I'm going to ask you all about six things. And what I'd like you to do is just think about where to hang your hat on. Because all of us have motivators, things that motivate us. And for some of us, this may be more than one thing. So just close your eyes because I found that that helps you not be so distracted. And just listen to these motivators. This is what people responding to surveys say motivates them. Number one is money and rewards. Number two is being the best, kind of like Top Gun. If you're in Top Gun, you want to be Maverick. Number three, power and fame. Number four, recognition. Number five, helping others. 
And number six, fear of shame and failure. All right, so just for a second, think about maybe where are y'all's motivators? Like, why do you get up in the morning? Why do you go to school? Why do you go to work? Why do you have kids? All right, go ahead and open your eyes, okay? For most of you, you probably have several, right? I know I do. I, I learned through the process of preparing for this that there's a lot of motivators in my life. A lot of them come from my past. Some of them come from where I want to be in the future. Some of them we say are better than others, right? Money and rewards, I mean, that, maybe not that. Okay, that's neutral. Helping others, definitely, that's good. Fear of shame, I hope none of us are motivated by that, but I know that there's truth there. And so there's all kinds of things that motivate us. But as I said, the past tends to be kind of a motivator. That's what I've really realized, um, probably most profoundly as I prepare for this. And can I tell y'all a little story? Y'all cool with that over there? This side, you okay with the story? All right, y'all, y'all like stories? I like stories. So tell y'all a little bit about my dad. Y'all never met my dad. You may never meet my dad. Um, but what I realize is that my motivations kind of come from my past and my dad's come from his past and so on and so forth. But uh, I got a little picture for y'all and I just want to show you this, this lovely place. Um, this is the Sequatchie Valley. Anybody ever been to Tennessee before? Sure you have. Have you ever been to the Sequatchie Valley? I actually talked to someone that's gone jeeping in the Sequatchie Valley, but it's beautiful, right? And so just a little tiny story about the lanes, right? So the first lane that we can find right after the Revolutionary War came to what would be Tennessee, wasn't even Tennessee, and um, settled in the Sequatchie Valley. And um, I don't know why he decided to go there. I mean, it sure is pretty. But at the time, it was Cherokee country. It wasn't even a state. It wasn't part of the United States. It was ceded to the United States years later. So he moved completely off the grid. And so I don't know why. It would be fascinating to find out. I'm sure there's a good story. I like stories. Maybe someday I'll know it. But he moved to this beautiful place. And so right after the Revolutionary War, um, lanes go there. There's a few families that live on this mountaintop. And they stay there for 150 years, right? They're just there. And uh, it's, it's a tough place to live. The mountains can be hard. Anybody ever been to the mountains? Y'all probably heard stories. You know that. So my people are mountain people historically. And uh, so my dad was born there. He's born in this little town called Palmer, kind of near there. And, you know, being in the mountains even today, it's tough. In West Virginia right now, I, I used to live there. And my wife and I have been in homes that have no electricity. We've been in homes that have no water. One of the reasons is it's hard to pump water up a mountain for like four houses, right? It's expensive. We're talking three or four hours away from our nation's capital. There's people that live like they're in a developing country. And so back then, before my dad was born in the 30s, you know, you had the depression coming. It was a hard place to live. And coal mining was a big deal. So if you look at at the next slide, there's there's just a few pictures there. Um, This is the Palmer mine. There was a coal mine there. And you can see that dude riding the little... The coal train, you go, you know, it's really low in there. Um, and so life was okay when the coal mines were working. People could sort of farm, do the blacksmith thing, you know, shopkeeper, whatever. But the mine began to play out. When you think of coal, you don't think of Tennessee, right? So the mines are starting to play out. The depression hits. It's a hard life. It's just hard. And so, you know, that's not, these people aren't my family, but, you know, that's a cabin. You've seen an old cabin. That's how folks used to live. And this isn't from that county. It's a different county in the Cumberland Mountains where, the Sequatchie Valley is, but it's just hard living. And, you know, the girl's got no shoes. Little boy has no shoes. They're using a pump, a water pump. It's just a shared pump. There's an old ruddy road. And so my dad was born in Palmer. And when my dad was born, he was born in a log cabin. They didn't have any running water. There was a pump outside. They didn't have any electricity. And they didn't have any of the things we consider modern conveniences. So they used kerosene for lights. Uh, my grandmother, I've been told by my dad, would get up before dawn and she would go out and chop wood. She would bring the wood in. She would put it in the stove, the wood stove, and she'd get the place warm before they woke up. And then she'd cook breakfast. 
And when they needed water, they went out to the pump. I mean, it was just, it was just hard. And so, you know, the government realized in the depression that we got to get electricity out to these people in the mountains. And so the Tennessee Valley Authority came and they started building dams and they started damming the rivers so there wouldn't be so much flooding. They started providing electricity for the towns. There was one dam that actually supplied power for the bomb project where they were working on the first atomic bomb. And so Tennessee kind of, kind of was growing and becoming more affluent and getting electricity and stuff like that, but it hadn't really reached these little tiny places in these little mountaintops. And so my dad was born into that kind of environment. My grandmother did the best she could, but she went to eighth grade and then got married. And so that's kind of what she did, had a bunch of kids. She provided as well as she could for her family, but times are tough. You know, we're in the South. Some of y'all probably grew up very similarly, or maybe your parents or grandparents did. And so the stories, it's not all that outlandish or anything, but it does have to do with my father's motivations and my father's motivations have an effect on mine. And so if you look at the next uh, slide, there is a picture of my dad. My mom sent these to me. My dad is right there, that kid right there, that happy kid. He's six, okay? And so you can see that's, that's uh, my uncle and my aunt. And then that's another aunt who apparently decided to act like typical kid. I don't want to do this picture. And so uh, my dad there, you can see he's super happy, six years old. And if you notice, one of these things is not like the other, Okay. If y'all like those kind of games, what is kind of odd about the way everybody else is dressed compared to the way my dad's dressed? Anybody? He's got a jacket on. And so my mom said, your dad's super happy. And it looks kind of weird because like I was told first service that that is a sundress. Can I get a verification, ladies? Is that a sundress? Close enough? Okay. So my aunt's in a sundress. My other aunt's in a dress. And, you know, my uncle's, it's summer clothes, right? And my dad is wearing basically a coat. And he's got it all zipped up and buckled. And so my mom said, your dad remembers that picture very vividly because he was very proud of his new coat, his new jacket. That was a big deal for him because they didn't have a lot growing up. That was a big deal. And doggone it, he was going to wear it in the picture and he was going to give his best smile. And that's the way it was. And so my dad was motivated by how he grew up. He didn't have a lot. Again, my grandmother did the best she could, but there were a bunch of kids and it was hard times. And, you know, my dad decided, you know what, I'm going to go to school. My mom didn't go to school, so I'm going to go to school. He went to high school, and then Vietnam came, and my dad decided being drafted didn't sound all that appealing, so he joined the Marines. Any Marines here today? No Marines. No Marines in first service either. Okay. Well, how about Army people? They always do that. They did that first service. All right? Navy people, any Navy? Air Force? Coast Guard? CIA? Undercover? (laughs) Any GLG-20s in the room? So... But yeah, my dad joined the Marines, and that was really good for him because the GI Bill, some of y'all probably have participated in the GI Bill. My dad got to go to college, first person in his family to go to college. Everybody didn't really get it. What's up with this guy? What's up with Roy going to college? I don't get it. But he did because he wanted something more than what my grandmother was able to provide, and he knew education and good job, et cetera, would, would be part of the way to get there. Dad goes to college, gets a good job, gets married, has me, ends up with an MBA. I think I was three when he finished the MBA. And my dad's not a good typist. Don't tell him I said this, but my mom typed all his papers. He would write them out by hand. My mom had to type them up. So it was kind of a team effort. I didn't have computers back then. But my dad got his MBA. You know, my dad became a believer when he was young. But somewhere along the way, he realized that it, it, it's more than just placing your faith in Christ if you want to have a fulfilled and peaceful heart and life. You know, after, after he got the education and did the military and had kids and had a house of his own and we had a cool dog, we had all that stuff. We had a station wagon, one of those old Woody station wagons. 
It was all good. It would seem on the you know, financial side, education side, provide for your family side. But somewhere along the way, and I couldn't tell you exactly when, my dad was wise enough to figure out that it's not just about accomplishments and it's not just about money and it's not just about what you can get and how much you can provide for your kids. It's about following after the Lord and making your life revolve around him and then leading your children to do the same thing. And maybe some of y'all already figured this out in life. There was one of the wisest men ever to live. Y'all ever heard of King Solomon? King Solomon? Yeah, smart guy. A lot of stories about him. He wrote a lot of Proverbs. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is kind of a weird book. But Solomon is just kind of trying to figure out what is this meaning of life? What's the point? And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we see what he says about accomplishments and motivations. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So he would say, everything is, these things are vanity. It's vanity. He means it's pointless. It's, what's, it's no big deal. It's not eternal. It's not important in the long run. He said in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Y'all ever hear the stories about people that win the lottery? You ever hear those stories? What happens when you win the lottery? You realize you have a lot more relatives than you ever knew and you ever thought, right? And you have way more best friends from first grade. You never knew this, right? So when you win the lottery, man, people come out of the woodwork. First grade, second grade, hey, remember middle school? You told me you'd always be there for you, man. And they all have financial needs. They don't just want to hang out, right? They have financial needs. And so Solomon, man, he's the richest guy in the world that we know of at that time. And he's got all these people wanting stuff. You know, the more money you have, he had, he had a lot of kids. He had a lot of people wanting things from him. And he's like, man, this is just tiresome. And so he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. That means just like a regular guy, a regular Joe. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Notice we're coming back around to talking about food, talking about being satisfied. What he's saying is, man, my stomach is full, dude. My stomach is completely full, but it doesn't help me sleep at night because I've got all these issues because I tend to get focused on the things of this world instead of the things of heaven. And so Solomon, super wise guy, but he knew this thing. It's not about how much you have. It's about something more. And so let's flip back around in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, our, our focus for today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, what are they hungering, supposed to hunger and thirst for? What's Jesus talking about here? Righteousness. We see that all the time in the Bible, right? Righteousness. But what is righteousness? When I was a kid, being righteous meant that I had all the answers right on the test. It means that I told the truth. It meant checking all the boxes dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's. But that's not righteousness. That's just legalism. Some of us struggle with that. That's not righteousness. We're going to find out what it is. It says they shall be satisfied. So let's look at those two words, righteousness and satisfied. And it's time for more butchering of the lovely Greek language. If If you're watching online from Greece, I apologize. You have a wonderful language. Please continue to speak it. Dikaiosune. Righteousness, justice. It's a divine righteousness. It doesn't mean to do really well on your SATs and get into the college you want. It doesn't mean that you don't, you know, you don't do drugs. It doesn't mean that you obey the speed limit and wear your seatbelt. That's not what we're talking about. It's the state of being acceptable to God. That's a little bit deeper meaning, right? Maxing out your SAT does not make you acceptable before God, does it? I mean, that's not why God made you. That's not a bad thing. That's not why God made you. You want to be acceptable to God. Let's look at the next word. 
cortazzo, to feed, fatten, fill, or satisfy. Y'all ever go uh, to a family Thanksgiving or Christmas gathering? What is something you might say after you're done eating? You're stuffed. That Watch out, I might pop, right? Don't mess with me. Guys, have you loosened the belt before? You take it out, at least one belt buckle, right? Sometimes, if we're smart, we plan ahead. We pre-loosen the belt. You know what I'm talking about? You've got like that, you know, you got that one hole in your belt that's like worn because you use it all the time. And there's like the holid, their holiday or big lunch, yeah, probably big lunch hole. And then the next one is like the Thanksgiving one. And you might plan ahead so it doesn't look so awkward. But this word actually started out meaning to stuff an animal, to fill an animal so it was satisfied. You know, anybody want to eat a scrawny turkey for Thanksgiving? Anybody ever had a wild turkey for a meal? Those things are like tough. And maybe not as succulent as a farm-raised bird because they're stuffing the animal. They're filling it. They're making it nice and plump. So when you bake it and everything or however you cook it or deep fry it, highly recommend. It's delicious. So at first it referred to animals. And then, you know, as a lot of words that we refer to animals about, they get applied to people. Same thing with this word. It was later applied to people as being stuffed, as being filled, as being satisfied, as being like, oh, yeah, relaxed. And so that's what we're talking about here. That's what this word means. And so you've got to ask yourself, how do we get this righteousness? How can I be satisfied? I mean, I'm assuming everybody here wants to be at spiritual peace, right? I mean, we all kind of realize if we think about it for longer than maybe a minute, that we have a hole in our soul. We have a spiritual hunger problem. We have a spiritual thirst problem. And God wants to provide a way to fix that for you. So there's a beautiful story in the book of John, chapter 4. And so Jesus sits down at a well, and he's talking to this woman, and she's not a very well-reputed woman. She doesn't have a lot of wise decisions in her past. Her past isn't so great. Her motivation's probably not, not anything she'd be proud of, to be honest. Nobody really wants to emulate her. And Jesus is completely breaking down the norms and, and the mores of society. She's not even Jewish. And so she's a woman. And Jesus is a respected teacher. So it's a big deal that he's talking to her. But Jesus loves everybody. And Jesus wants everyone to have peace. And so it's a great story, John chapter 4. If you, if you get a moment, completely should read John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus knows that everybody's been thirsty before. And he's, he's staying with this metaphor of thirst and hunger. He wants to help her not to be physically satisfied. He wants to help her to be spiritually at peace and spiritually satisfied. So Jesus says in, in verse 14, he says, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus isn't talking about, you know, let's draw some water and you can drink it and yay, he knows we'll be back, right? Because for some reason I am thirstier this morning than I've ever been before. It's weird, but we're talking about thirst, so it kind of works. I may drink this entire bottle. Jesus here is talking about a spring of water welling up from your soul. We're talking about taking care of that deep spiritual, spiritual thirst. And so obviously you have to place your faith in Christ. There's no way you're going to have peace in your life. Jesus is very clear with that woman. It doesn't matter what your past is, what your motivations are, why you are here with all the decisions you've made and why no one wants me to spend time with you. Place your faith in me and I'll take care of your spiritual thirst. You got to follow me. So that sounds great. And a lot of us here have probably faced, placed our faith in Jesus, but it, it's still a struggle. Our motivations are a struggle. We're not really at peace. We're not really satisfied. 
we don't feel like we just had that big spiritual Thanksgiving feast and we're just relaxed. And so Paul knows this. And Paul knows it's hard. And so he was a genius and he said it better than I ever could. So in Ephesians chapter four, we'll read what he said about this little problem. He said, but that is not the way you learn Christ. So he's writing a letter to the church at Ephesus. He's been there and he, he, he knows these people, but he's not with them. So he's, he's writing kind of respectful letter. He's like, that's not the way you learn Christ. And he continues, he says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He's like, Hey, this is the, what you should have heard. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus that you should have heard. So let's, let's double check and make sure. You were told to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So this is talking about motivations here. Put off the old self because it's corrupt. It's got the old motivations. It's got the ones you grew up with because of the way your dad grew up or the way you grew up or what happened to you or that your dad wasn't around or maybe you, you were abused or maybe you had everything growing up and there was no discipline in your home. You know, I don't know what your deal was. Everybody had a different background. Everybody has different motivations. But what Paul's saying here is all those motivations, they're, they're not pure because they're not of God. They're not of Christ. They're just something that you've built up. And so the image here is to take off the old self. And I have a question. Guys, do y'all have a, uh, a favorite shirt? Anybody here have a favorite shirt? Yeah? Maybe a favorite, favorite pair of shoes. Ladies, do y'all have a favorite shirt? Maybe a pair of shoes. I think you call it a blouse. Is it still referred to as a blouse? If it's French, it refers to the ladies' clothing. If it's not, it refers to guys' clothing. Shirt, blouse. It just sounds, sounds better. Y'all might have a, a favorite like pair of shoes, favorite pair of pants, favorite shirt, something like that. Well, I do. This is my favorite shirt. Okay. And, uh, I'm a Tennessee fan. You know, y'all can take pity on me. Pray for my soul. If you want to, that's fine. But it's got orange on it, which is a plus, right? And it's, but it's not outland. It's just not going to drive people out of the room. All right. It's not like I'm wearing like blaze orange completely, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, I like the shirt. It fit right. It had the right length to it. It was cool. It was soft. You know, it didn't chafe my arms or anything. It was just nice. The best part about it, though, you can't see this, but it's a Tony Hawk shirt. Okay, Tony Hawk. Y'all know Tony Hawk is the coolest guy ever. And I don't even think he makes clothing anymore, but I know he still skateboards. He'll be, he'll probably skateboard his way into the afterlife is my, is my guess. But this is my favorite shirt. And I used to wear it to important things. Like when you have a favorite shirt, shoes, pants, whatever, you wear it to important things, right? Date night. Maybe, um, maybe, you know, you have a favorite shirt that you wear to work. We're not talking about a work shirt, but a shirt that you would wear if something big was about to happen. Like you're going to ask for a raise at work. Maybe you wear that, that favorite shirt, that favorite pair of shoes or something like that. Or, you know, um, you, you hope that, uh, you're going to get a chance to take a trip. So, Hey, I'm going to New York or I'm going somewhere special. I'm going to wear my favorite shirt. And so this shirt, there's one problem with it. It's too little, but it's still my favorite shirt. And so it stays in my closet. It probably won't ever go anywhere anytime soon. My wife will eventually get rid of it when I'm not around, I guess, or whatever. But it doesn't fit anymore. I can't, I mean, I can get it on. You'd laugh if I got it on. I mean, like, ah, I look like the Hulk when he's getting angry. And um, it wouldn't be cool. It just doesn't fit properly anymore. I, I shouldn't wear it. I keep it in the closet because it's that lucky shirt, that favorite shirt. It comforts me, but it, it doesn't really fit anymore. And you may have a shirt like that that doesn't go away. You may have any, you know, something like that that you wear. You really should get rid of it, but it, you have good memories associated with it or it's lucky or whatever. Y'all remember a picture of my dad? What was he wearing? 
that jacket. He loved that jacket, right? Y'all don't know my dad. He's a little bit smaller than me. He's like right at six foot, maybe 180-ish, you know? And um, it doesn't really matter, though, because if he tried to put on that jacket, it would be like a joke, right? It would be funny. He can't get into a six-year-old's jacket. It's silly. It's ridiculous. But the deal is, in our lives, we're trying to wear that jacket that doesn't fit. We're trying to wear that lucky shirt that we're connected to for whatever reason, whatever past we have with it. It, it doesn't work anymore. You know, I'd love to say that it doesn't fit anymore because I'm swole more than I used to be. Um, you know, there's two kinds of swole. There's the good kind and the bad kind. And, um, you know, I'd like to believe that. I don't know if that's true. The safe thing to say would be that it just shrunk, you know, as things will. But the fact of the matter is it doesn't fit anymore. And I shouldn't wear it. And I, I'm not. And now I have a new shirt. See, my wife got me this shirt. She likes it. It's soft. It's hip and cool. I asked the first service if they liked it, and I got a lot of stares, so I'm not going to ask that. But I like it, and my wife likes it. And that's honestly all I care about. So <laughs> maybe my kids like it. They're telling me straight up. But uh, I like this shirt. It fits me. It lets me move around. It's not constricting. It's soft, which is cool. I mean, it, 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 it does what I need it to do, but it is a new shirt. It is appropriate for me now. And so this is what Paul's talking about. Okay, you got to put something on that's appropriate for you now. You don't need to wear your six-year-old jacket. You loved it, and it was awesome, but you're not six anymore. And so he's saying, put off the old self. It belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt. It's not going to take you where you want to go. It's not going to give you that peace. And so here's what Paul says here. In verse 23, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You see, we've got an issue in our heart. That hunger and thirst we have is in our heart. That peace, that satisfaction needs to happen in our heart. But all those motivations that you have, and we talked earlier when you had your eyes closed, all those motivations, they're from where? They're from up here, right? Because up here is where your memories live. Up here is where your, your human motivations that occur here on earth, this temporal motivations, they happen from here. And they won't fill the hole here in your heart. You need a different kind of motivation. You need a different kind of thirst quencher, a different kind of hunger satiating thing. And so Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Change your mind. Put on the new self, the new shirt, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's that word again, righteousness. You've got to get rid of the old stuff, man. You place your faith in Christ, but you keep going back to that lucky shirt. And I know it's lucky, it's your favorite, but it's, it's, it's not the shirt that Christ has died for you to wear now. Stop trying to go get it. Stop reaching for it and putting it on. Keep it in your memory bank. It's part of who you are. Keep it in your closet. But let it go. Put on the new stuff that Christ has provided for you. That's so important. You know, in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is telling folks not to be worried so much. And it's a, it's a beautiful passage about flowers and birds. Who doesn't like flowers and birds, right? But he's coming to the end and he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? See, he knows this is what they struggle with. They struggle with the day to day. They are hungry. They are thirsty. Or what shall we wear? He's like, This stuff, just like Solomon says. It goes over here. It's not what's most important. It shouldn't be what drives you. Let's be somewhere else now. He says, the Gentiles seek after these things. The Gentiles are just, for our purposes, people that don't, they're not following Christ at this point. He says, your heavenly father knows you need them all. He's like, all that stuff, those motivations, you know, you want that Mercedes SUV, you want those clothes, you want that money. Like, you want to be like Scrooge McDuck. Y'all remember Scrooge McDuck? What did he do? He used to just swim and bathe in his money, right? 
That, that, you want that. That's, that's, that's what you want. They're hunting, right? But God knows you need all that. He knows you need food. He knows you need clothes. He knows you need all these things. And you're so worried about it. You're trying to go back to this old shirt, to that old jacket and put it on. You just need to stop. My father knows you need them all. Here's what you need to focus on. I can help you. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. We keep hearing that word. And all these things will be added to you. Now hear me here. Jesus is not saying if you seek his kingdom and righteousness, I will give you that Mercedes SUV. He's not saying that. Okay, he's not saying he's going to give you a bunch of money. He's not saying he's going to give you 100 lucky shirts. He's saying he's going to give you what you need. And we need to trust him to do that. That's what he's saying. Sometimes people twist that verse. He's saying, I want you to seek me, seek right standing before me. And then you don't have to worry about all the peripheral stuff because that's what it is. Let go of that. Wear this. Let's move forward. So I know Arthur talked last week. He spent some time in Psalm chapter 37. Most people think that David wrote this. You know, David, you want to talk about a guy with some motivation issues. You know, y'all heard the story of David and Goliath. Anybody? David and Goliath? Who would like to have been David during the David and Goliath time, right? Whoever, come on guys. Who pretended they would like to be David or I get the smooth stones and stuff? Dude, David made a lot of mistakes too. David had all kinds of interesting motivations. He was the, the, the smallest. He was like the runt of the family. He was the little guy. He was the youngest. He, he was kind of, his, his family was like, eh, it's David guy, not so sure. And then he was anointed to be king and then he didn't get to be king because there was another king and he ran for his life and there was war and battle and he made poor decisions with the ladies. A lot of weird motivations up here for David. But David learned his motivations should come from here, his relationship with God. And so towards the end of his life, we believe he wrote this psalm. And he says quite simply, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. So it's an encouragement. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, you point yourself at God. You go around God. You revolve around him instead of yourself or your past or whatever baggage you've got. But let's, let's rotate around God as our axis. And then we put our heart into his. We just give him ourselves. And he will give us desires that he wants us to have that will literally give us peace. He says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He says, man, don't put on that old shirt. Don't do the silly things that I did. Wear the new shirt that you have because you have a relationship with Jesus. If, if he could have talked about Jesus, he would have. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him as we trust in Jesus and he will act on your behalf. He will act for you. You don't have to go back to that old shirt, that old jacket. And finally, he wraps up in verse six. He says, he will bring forth your, where's that word again? Righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Beautiful. He's saying he will bring forth your right standing before God, just like light. So here's the issue, y'all. And I know we all deal with it. We've all got our motivations. Maybe we've invented them. Maybe they've come from our past. But they may not be from God. Unless you're being motivated by wanting to have peace and fulfillment in God's righteousness and right standing before him, it's all going to lead you not to a place of peace and contentment. And so, you know, I want to leave y'all, as we close here, I want to leave y'all with... um, with a verse, I think will help you. Beautiful verse. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. Now, the, the church in 
Corinth, man, they had a lot of issues with motivations. They had issues with everything from the food that they ate to worshiping idols to fighting with each other to sexual things, perversions, all kind of junk, division. I mean, if you can think about it, stuff that happens now, it happened then and it happened in their church. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's real simple. You want to know how to have a right standing with God? The whole New Testament is about how to have right standing with God. And it's summed up like this. Place your faith in Jesus because you will have a wellspring to eternal life in your heart. You won't have to spiritually thirst anymore. Place your faith in Christ. And you're going to be tempted to go back to your old ways. You're going to be tempted to fill the hole that only Jesus should fill in your soul, that hunger and thirst. You're going to be tempted to try to find peace and you're going to be tempted to try to find contentment and relaxation. You're going to be tempted to find in this old shirt, that old jacket, that old way of life, those old motivations, wherever they came from. But I want you to not do that. I want you to renew your mind, put on the new shirt, right? Get a jacket that fits where you are now. See, God's given you that outfit. He wants to renew your mind. He wants to renew everything about you. Change your motivations to follow him. And then if you're wondering about whether something is going to bring you peace and it's going to make you feel righteous and it's going to make you be satisfied, does it bring glory to God? A lot of things I do in life don't bring glory to God. A lot of things I do when I parent or when I husband, I don't know if that's a verb. Lots of stuff doesn't bring glory to God because, man, sometimes I just don't stop and say, is this going to bring glory to God? That would be simple if we could do that. And I've, I've told my kids to think before they speak and to think before they act. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes y'all are going back and you're putting on this, this old jacket, this old shirt. And it's not, it's not helping your peace situation. And so I want to pray for y'all. The band's going to come back out. And just uh, close your eyes with me and, and just allow God to speak into your heart this morning.